Hello everybody, welcome to this new episode of Lateral Conversations, my more or less regular podcast. My name is Thomas Mark. Uh, my guest today is American, I should say post postmodern philosopher Steve McIntosh, who just recently published his third book, The Presence of the Infinite. In this book he writes a lot about the role of spirituality in a postmodern and post postmodern context, so I guess we have a lot to talk about. Before I will cut to this interview, I would like to say if you want to support this podcast, you can do so by using the Amazon affiliate link, uh, which you will find at the bottom of the site, which would be very much appreciated. So if you do this, uh, thank you. I get some percentage out of every order. Um, yeah. So, without further ado, this is my conversation with Steve. Enjoy it, have fun, all the best to you. I say adios till next time. We're on. Yes, we're on. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Thank you for doing this, Steve. Yeah, my pleasure. And thanks for, uh, you know, thanks for thinking of me and, and for doing an interview. Of course. Of course. So, I just read your, your book, your new book, um, The Presence of the Infinite. Just finished it reading. It's a great book. Oh, thanks. Thanks very much. Um, it's a book about spirituality and and its role in the context of like a post postmodern worldview. It's not it's not like um, just for for listeners. It's not like a book of specific um, techniques, but more like about the philosophy uh, of spirituality. Sure, it's not a it's not a self help. Mm. in that way um, but I do talk about a variety of spiritual practices that's true but these are not these are they're kind of in a philosophical frame mm. even the practices mm. are you know more truth practices than they are you know yoga or whatever mm. but as Sri Aurobindo said all life is yoga so mm. um, you know understanding <laughs> what's true thinking about the, the the true the beautiful and the good um, mm. as I do in the book uh, is an important part of everybody's spirituality Okay, because this this is like the question. I don't know if you did follow this because a couple of weeks ago there was a big discussion in the internet about if integral theory should abandon its spirituality to become more mainstream. Sure. So, so this was like a big discussion in, in the Facebook groups and conferences. So, but I, I would like to ask the, in, in the different approach: why why is spirituality important? What uh, for? Postmodern people, or like postmodern worldview, or the post postmodern worldview. What sure. do you think about this? Well, I would say it's it's important on a variety of levels. Uh, one is that um, having a sense of purpose, especially mm. a higher purpose, is um, intricately tied in with happiness. Okay. You know that is if we, I, I understand happiness as the experience of spiritual growth, when we're growing spiritually, mm. that's what makes us happy ultimately. Mm. And when we find ourselves unhappy, it's because we're somehow lacking spiritual growth. Well, so what do I mean by spiritual growth? Uh, there's all kinds of different definitions, mm. but a, a straightforward way of understanding it is uh, living up to your potential, right? Mm. Giving your gift in the world, right? Achieving mm. the highest purpose that you can Uh, you can bring to the world mm. and uh, you know not to sound too cliche about it but that involves making the world a better place of course you know as mm. I argue in the book creating value 
creating mm. the, the beautiful, the true, and the good, bringing that into the world, mm. regardless of whatever your spiritual belief system is, mm. focusing on your higher purpose and, and thinking about your spirituality in terms of your higher purpose and giving mm. I think, uh, you know, not only is it helping us live up to our duty to try, mm. try to, you know, contribute to the, the gradual improvement of the human condition, mm. but it's also relative to our own happiness. Because as mm. I argue, uh, if we're not serving some purpose greater than ourselves, then ultimately we're not going to be satisfied with our lives. Mm. Okay. So it's in in interesting because when I was reading your book, I was reminded I have written a quite similar book like a couple of years ago uh, um, about the role of spirituality, the evolution of spirituality. And when I'm reading your book, it's like, as you would say, I'm moving in the same attractor basin yes. as yes. yours, but I have like a different starting point as you. So uh -huh. my, my, the, the conclusions of my argument or your argument is basically the same, but the way we're going, we're going there. Right. So, and, and right. so when, when I was reading your book, I feel that, that it uh, was very enriching for me because it's like a different perspective on, on evolution. So, and, and the evolutionary aspect of, of um, spirituality. So to, to grow. So because you said to define a higher purpose, I define this as the daimon, as a genius, like the Greeks, understood it like something higher in a way um, which we have to discover and have to bring in the world. Yes, yes. And as I argue in the book, mm. uh, that now that both science and history, you know, and the scholarship of humanity mm. has discovered in this incredibly new picture of our origins, you mm. know, 13.8 billion years ago, time itself begins mm. and the universe is in a process of becoming ever since mm. then. Uh, you know, since the first Big Bang, there's a kind of a second Big Bang with life. Mm. And then a third Big Bang, really, mm. the emergence of a new domain of evolution with humanity. Mm. Because we're able to become agents of evolution mm. in ways that previous forms of it could not, right? Mm. Even though we're all in the flow of this becoming, mm. um, we now have responsibility for it. You know, we mm. have agency within it. Mm. And so, you know, if we want to know what evolution's purposes are, as I argue, mm. um, we only really need to look within ourselves. You know, our mm. purposes are its purposes. And that is how we get to the beautiful, the true, and the good, or, or you know, this kind of uh, attractor of intrinsic value, however mm. we find that. Um, and even then, we can, we can modify our understanding of what's beautiful, true, and good through an evolutionary perspective, mm. because it answers the question of why is what's good, true, and beautiful different for different people in different mm. parts of the world, right? Mm. And that's because our worldview, our consciousness, evolves. Mm. And one of the most profound ways that it evolves is by moving up the, the scale of octaves mm. of the beautiful, the true, and the good. Now, each mm. one of these worldviews that are identified by, you know, this evolutionary or integral perspective that we share, mm. every one of them can be understood as a frame of what's beautiful, true, and good. You know, the mm. membrane of the worldview is made up of what's valuable. And that what's valuable defines what could be better, right? So we're, we're in this worldview, and that's helping us define what could be better. But the most dramatic ways that humans have been able to make things better is by improving their definition of improvement itself, mm. by expanding the scope of what they're able to find mm. to be beautiful, true, and good. So, you know, the origin story is a powerful spiritual teaching in itself, and it has a lot of facets, which, you know, I unpack in the book. Okay. So let's let's just start from, from, from the beginning. You, you wrote uh, three books, a book about post-postmodern awareness, uh, integral, right. integral Consciousness was the title of the book. Then you wrote a book about uh, evolution's purpose, And now about the 
evolutionary aspect of spirituality, the presence of the infinite. So uh, beginning from the start, what what is like a post-postmodern worldview? What is your understanding of the post-postmodern condition, so to, so to speak, for, for, sure. for, for, the, for those people who don't have a conception of it and, and in the most broad terms, so to say. Right, right, good. Well, that's an excellent question. It's important to kind of, that's really the foundation of so much of this. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, uh, human culture uh, develops and evolves, mm-hmm. and as it develops and evolves, it, it uh, solves problems, mm-hmm. but then it creates new problems, right? Mm-hmm. And like all forms of evolution, it doesn't, proceed by a seamless continuum of growth mm. it's more uh it, it more it proceeds according to stages discrete steps and the steps follow a dialectical path right where there's mm. a thesis then there's an antithesis then a synthesis again it's not a a, a rigid deterministic law of history mm. or some you know marxian materialism it's more just a, an observation of the pattern mm. of the development of culture which develops according to consciousness mm. consciousness and culture evolve together so to be concrete, the most obvious and agreed upon example in history of this emergence of new stages of mm. culture and consciousness is seen during the Enlightenment, right? Mm. In, in Europe and the United States 350 years ago mm. or so, uh, a new way of seeing the world, a new definition of what was beautiful, true, and good, mm. right? A powerful new method, right? Science, mm. philosophy, m- modernity as it's known by the mainstream. We, mm. we call it in... Uh, in integral parlance, um, modernism. Of course. Mm. ...views that it emerges out of, right? So, you know, all the great world's religions have their own worldview, but there's something very similar about all the different pre-modern traditional worldviews that we can mm. classify them together as a tr- traditional stage of historical development in humanity. And that there's both okay. dignities and important enduring values, accomplishments mm. of the traditional level, and mm. disasters, which we have to prune away or you know, move beyond. Mm. So modernity makes a big leap uh, in the Enlightenment, mm. which even though, of course, modernity has evolved itself significantly in the last 350 years, mm. the same values, the same emphasis on science mm. being the definition of what's primarily real, mm. the same dialectical relationship with the traditional worldview and its politics and its morals, you know, there's there's a clear dialectical difference between the traditional worldview and modernity, mm. right? So that's, that's not necessarily an integral proposition. That's agreed upon by modernist scholars themselves, you know, of course. Europe and America. Of course, it's controversial. There are people mm. who, who want to refute that thesis. But holding that aside for a second, there clearly was an enlightenment. You know, the world has clearly become globalized and modernized mm. in, in some profound ways, you know, for mm. both good and bad over the last 350 years. So... About 50 years ago, um, in the United States and in Europe, there mm. was this, you know, 1960s, right? The hippie movement, the youth mm. movement, and, and you know, that was sort of the birth of a countercultural way of relating to what's mm. beautiful, true, and good, right? That is awesome. the path, you know, the, the countercultural revolution of the 60s, at least in the United States, it emerged primarily among middle class youth. Right, mm. the, the, the sort of the wealthy sons and daughters of the, mm. of the, of the greatest generation, as, as mm. they're called in the U.S., that they had everything that modernity had to offer. Right, they had all the the middle class status and material, and they looked at that society and that value system, and they said, you know, we reject that. You know, we, we don't care about status and material. We mm. want to find our values in other ways. Right, so. Mm. This emerges in the 60s, but then the youth movement becomes assimilated into the larger culture, at least a portion Mm. of it, right, in the 1970s. Mm. And then there's this 
alternative worldview, right? Mm. Which has been called many things, you know, uh, it was originally defined in the 90s as the cultural creatives, right? Of By course, Paul Ray, yeah. yeah, but who kind of glorified this, this group. It's about 20% of the mm. US. It's a larger percentage in Europe, I think. But I think the Maybe. European postmodernism, yeah, I mean, you know it better than me, but uh, European postmodernism is a little different, but there's mm. a lot of similarities in that. You know, this, this, we're, we're, you and I call it postmodernism. That's mm. a defined term. It trips mm. up a lot of people because when they hear postmodern, the, the most usual association is with critical forms of academia, mm. kind of projectionist, neo-Marxian academia that comes from thinkers like Derrida and Foucault. Yeah, of you know, course, who, the end of grand narratives and all right, this stuff. Right, right. So that's a subset mm. of, of, of the, the, this world that you and I are talking about, mm. right? That when we say postmodern, of course, it includes, you know, the rejectionist challenges to modernist ways of mm. thinking, but also includes all the countercultural ways in which we've come to relate mm. to a world that we know is better and mm. more evolved than the modernist world. Mm. That includes things like, you know, alternative medicine, alternative food, alternative spirituality, mm. alternative politics, uh, you know, a, a, a re reclamation of spirituality mm. in, in, a, in a way that goes beyond the traditional level mm. of the traditional understanding. So the postmodern worldview, as it's come to emerge in the last mm. 50 years and occupy a significant place in the demographics of America and Europe, mm. is a, an undeniable historical emergence, which you know, modernists sometimes have a hard time seeing it. They just see it as a fringe counterculture. But from an integral perspective, we kind of honor it and recognize it as, in some ways, as historically mm. significant as the original emergence of modernity, right, mm. 300 years ago, or even the emergence of this traditional worldview in the mm. axial age or before, right? So mm. it's distinct because it's in a dialectical relationship with modernism, mm. right? Of course. Even though postmodernism is ephemeral and hard to define, what, what kind of pulls all postmodernists together is their agreement regarding the abundant pathologies mm. of modernity, right? Of course. You know, yeah, and so modernity's pathologies are kind of what triggered the emergence of postmodernism, like mm. environmental degradation, right? Militarism, sexism, racism, all of the, many of the remnants of the traditional level of morality, mm. postmodernism was able to sort of take a portion of modernity and say, no, we don't mm. want to be in those, you know, chauvinistic or sexist or patriarchal value forms. We want to, you know, be liberated. We want to be emancipated mm. to a new level of values, right? Mm. So postmodernity is the most evolved form of culture that has yet to appear mm. from an integral perspective. Mm. But it's not I the think, end. I think there's a consensus that there's something about like like modernity, but what the exactly aspects of what what is postmodernity? This is like not a consensus. This is up for debate. Sometimes sure. it's so. Of course, what you say is right. There's like other descriptions, like uh, transgress into the unknown, you know, relativism, all this is part of postmodernism and, and the, the, um, the, the deconstruction of truth and of naive realism and all, all those stuff, all those have, belongs to, to postmodernism. Sure, absolutely. You know, and there are intellectual strains and then there are also, you know, countercultural strains that don't have a lot to do with philosophical mm. understandings of the mm. world. They're more, you know, they, they seek emancipation through music or mm. through alternative lifestyle or through, you know, countercultural communities, mm. uh, you know, affinity groups. I mean, mm. there's, there's all kinds of ways that the postmodern worldview has come into its formation. Mm. 
And I've lived through it. I mean, I remember in the early 70s being very attracted to the countercultural movement. You know, I wanted to be a hippie. I wanted to be part of the 60s movement. I was a little too young. But in the 70s, I didn't waste any time becoming a hippie. And it kind of formed my identity around this countercultural uh, worldview. Okay. And, and it's, it's formed the foundation of my, of my thinking and my spirituality, you know, for decades. But so, so you were there in the heyday of Timothy Leary? Or? Well, I, I, not quite. I was born in 1960, right? So oh, no I was precocious. All my friends were oh. older. By the time I was 12 or 13, mm. I, I became, you know, a, a part of the counterculture, okay. right? And, okay. and so, but I don't want to make too many big claims about, you know, uh, marching at Berkeley or anything oh, like yeah. that. Okay. You know? okay. But, but I, I definitely was attracted to it, and it definitely helped mold my identity mm. as being a counterculturalist, right? Okay. Um, but in the 90s, uh, here, especially here in Boulder, Colorado, where mm. I live, there was a real fluorescence. It really mm. felt like a spiritual renaissance was going mm. on when the, the new age, as we now, you know, new age is kind of a term of derision, right? But in the yes. 90s, it was, uh, you know, an exciting cultural mm. emergence. I mean, in the United States, um, new age books mm. were by far the largest category of book of course, sales. Course. They dwarfed all other books. You know, it seemed like there was a new age bookstore opening on every corner. Mm. So there was a real fluorescence going on. And mm. I felt like, wow, this is the spiritual renaissance that I've been waiting for all my life to mm. participate in. So I started a, a, a company to try to discern the art movement, you know, the aesthetics of mm. this. And I was, I, you know, I, I did my best to try to contribute to its emergence. But by the late 90s, I began to realize that the promise of a spiritual renaissance, which I saw as being, you know, post-modernity's, you know, end point or where it was going, mm. that that ultimately it, it, it the, the, the inherent pathologies that were associated with this postmodern worldview kind of kept it from providing a more inclusive form of spiritual leadership, which could uplift mm. the entire society, mm. right? And it was around that time, 1999, that I kind of had an awakening to this integral perspective, what you and I now call post-postmodern. Mm. That's an ugly term, but it well describes mm. what this integral perspective is. Mm. So in other words, we're trying to include all the important accomplishments mm. of breaking away from modernity, but we're kind of trying to go beyond from the antithesis to the synthesis, mm. where we can re-include all the very important accomplishments mm. of, you know, modernism, traditionalism, and, you know, the indigenous cultures, I mean, all the entire cultural ecosystem mm. of humanity's historical evolution mm. from an integral perspective has very important values mm. that we want to, you know, include even as we're transcending the limitations mm. of those previous stages. Um, this, this, I think, too, uh, post postmodernism is a very ugly term, but for, I, I like this on the other side because it can encompass all these movements which coming up in America and in, in Europe as well, um, who are like movements against the pathologies of postmodernism. So there's like um, integral theory, which you mentioned, there's performatism, there, there are all these metamodernism, all these... Um, philosophical or, uh, movements and, and, and ways to think beyond, okay, what's, what is happening after postmodernism? So and of course right. it's ugly, but you, what, what yeah. can we do? Well, and so, so it's important to talk about terminology, mm. you know, um, movements go in cycles, right? Mm. They have, a, they, they go up and then they go down. We see this with the feminist movement, you know, mm. over the last 200 years. And I think that, that you and I use a t variety of terms, integral, mm. evolutionary, mm. post-postmodern, 
you know, every one of those terms has baggage mm. and reason to object, right? Mm. Like we could say, well, you know, that, that, that intervals to associate with Ken Wilber, you mm. know, and the kind of the, the dying remnants of the Ken Wilber fan club, mm. you know, that's not going to sweep the world, right? Mm. Evolutionary is being used by many new age teachers, you know, mm. in a way that's appropriated the term that you can't tell, most can't tell the difference between, mm. you know, Barbara Marks Hubbard's evolutionary mm. and, mm. Uh, you know, Ken Wilber's evolutionary, right? Mm. But, um, the term post-postmodern is good because it points to, I think, the best phrase to describe what we're after here, and that is the next great phase of human history. Mm. Right? That, you know, just like modernity is not the end of history, postmodernism is not the end of history, there will come another stage. And when we understand culture from this evolutionary perspective, we can see that, that a dialectical emergence, mm. you know, a pushing off against, you know, what Hegel called the negation of the negation. Mm. You know, that was his word for the synthesis, right? Mm. So post-modernity is very much about a negation of modernity. Mm. So the way we go beyond that is we say, okay, in Hegel's dialectic, right, the mm. negation of the negation was not a complete invalidation mm. of the original negation, but just you know pruning away enough of it so that both the thesis and the antithesis could be carried mm. forward in the new synthesis. And that's okay. a, another way of understanding what we're after. Right. Okay. You know, but, we're not just dissing postmodernism. No, no, of course, on his shoulders. Yeah. Of course. So, but yeah. because you you talked about uh, the baggage of the of the term evolutionary. So, when it's a narrative, you know, which which began in the you know 15th century with the Holy Benedict who invented this idea that we have to do something to to get better to to leave, uh, lead a more better life, and and then this comes this secular idea of evolution that there was a big bang and from the big bang there, there was a development of planets of suns of um, microorganisms of, of cultures of consciousness this big history project from christian wolf i don't know if you if you know him so i do but, i've seen, I've seen the, the, the ted talk Exactly. So, but this is like a basically secular modernist worldview. So this is uh, with with a naive realism approach to things. So then then you have this postmodern stance where you can say, okay, it's a narrative. So we can't we can't actually say this actually happens in the real world, but this is our way of understanding of dealing with the dream of phenomenons which we are witnessing so and you i think you call it the the myth of the given that that right, we can't sure. talk about this real world but only about our conception so how how is uh, the evolutionary and evolutionary world or how is this different how do you differentiate this from from the evolutionary concepts of prior uh, worldviews yeah yeah well uh, i mean because modernity seeing mm. this in history helps us see the dialectical tensions mm. right it's, and, and, and part of the way of understanding it is like a sailboat, you know, mm. tacking against the wind. A sailboat can't sail directly into the mm. wind. It has to advance obliquely, mm. but it can only go so far before it has to turn back. Mm. Another analogy would be a, a river meandering in a floodplain. Mm. You know, it can only go so far and then it has to go back and forth. Same with history mm. in the sense that modernity was able to transcend the pre-modern religious, you know, society mm. by getting a really clear hold on truth, right? Mm. This kind of you know, the Cartesian understanding of objective reality mm. was a major advance that allowed science to get a purchase on reality that it mm. couldn't get before mm. and to make significant advances, right? Mm. But of course it went too far, you know, mm. in the sense that, um, that uh, uh, you know, the, the myth of the given or objectivity as we've talked about it, um, that uh, uh, offered an opportunity to say, no, wait, 
you know, much of the truth, this objective mm. truth that you're trying to discover mm. philosophically is constructed by you as a narrative and which is, you know, largely false, right? Mm. So the way forward to mm. go beyond scientism, mm. right, to go beyond the sort of overly rigid objectivity of modernity mm. was to claim the subjective side, the sailboat tack back, right? Mm. It's all a narrative, right? It's all constructed. So just as if the myth of the given you also have the myth of the framework, right? So that, it's, that, that there's no truth to be found, right? And so that's just this modernity was overly objective. Mm. You know, post-modernity, especially post-modern philosophy, is overly subjective. Mm. Right? You could say, what is truth at post-modernism? It's whatever's true for you, mm. right? And while there is some, indeed, some truth to truth being a little bit personal, like beauty is very mm. personal, right? Mm. There's also something about truth which, while not being entirely objective, is not entirely subjective either. Mm. So in, in the presence of the infinite, you know, when I really get down to the philosophical, uh, uh, you know, grappling with what mm. is truth, beauty, and goodness, mm. uh, I think about these things not in absolutistic terms, not as platonic forms, mm. right, but not in the existential philosophy sense of being just purely a projection, right? The way I see it is, is that there is a direction of, of goodness, a direction of greater perfection in the okay. universe, right? And that, 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 while that direction of perfection is not objective in the sense that it's pre-given, we as humans know what could be better because we are in a world of suffering and trouble. Right? We, we look around and we see these problems, even if we may be comfortable, the, the fact that other people in the world are suffering and that there's you know a lot of work to be done to make this planet uh, and this you know, civilization more moral, right? Mm. More beautiful, more true, and more good. Um, that, that sense that we have, that collective sense of duty that I spoke about at the beginning of our interview, it pulls on us in a way that, um, that we, we can feel that there is a direction. That, that goodness can never be achieved, but it can be approached. And, and when you approach it, you recognize there's more goodness. It's like a vector, mm. you know, a line. So understanding that, um, that, that evolution is about solving problems. And when we solve one set of problems, we create another set of problems. Of course. So some people look at that and say, well, there is no progress. Or progress is a, is a naive conception that's mm. based on a Victorian notion of linear cultural superiority, right? Mm. So in, in Evolution's Purpose, in my second book, which you mentioned, I take great pains to try to explain what an integral understanding of progress is, right? Mm. So what our values, part of it is, is, is like understood more as a verb than a noun. Mm. So what's true is what's more relatively more real than something else. And what makes it true is when we become more real by, by you know, grasping or realizing that mm. truth, right? And so it's not just good for our own increased reality awareness. As we become more aware of a reality, we become more powerful, right? Mm. So science's awareness of reality through scientific truth made humanity more powerful, right? Mm. On the truth realm, right? Post-modernity's keener sense of suffering in the world made us improved in a more moral way, right? We began to realize that those who've been marginalized or exploited or the victims, you know, mm. very important to kind of sort of redress these mm. wrongs, right? But again, you can fixate on that in a way that, that, that you know, leads to a dialectical dead end. Mm. So, so that's where the synthesis comes in. You know, we, we're faced in this modern time, by the time we're alive, but these two great forces of history in, mm. in Europe and America, modernity and post-modernity, even though modernity is much larger and more politically and economically powerful than post-modernity, mm. the postmodern challenge is real. You know, it, it means that we can't just be satisfied being in a modernist conception anymore. We have to question mm. all that. Mm. But we have to question our questioning 
you know, and recognize that modernity has achieved some very important things that we need. And indeed, we're sitting on the shoulders of, and it seems like many postmodern commentators have a hard time mm. appreciating that truth, you know. Mm. Okay, because um, I don't know um, uh, as um, how much you follow the the developments in Europe in regard of those post postmodern movements. I don't know if you Sloterdijk yeah. and Cicek and and uh, Eshelman. What what I personally find very interesting is this concept. Okay, there is like with postmodernity we are going um, towards the the relativity. We are, we are um, crossing boundaries, we find this in architecture, we find this in literature. When you have post-postmodern literature, you have different layers of telling the story so that you don't know actually who is talking, William Faulkner, for example, Sound of the right. Fury. And you always have this transgress in, in interrelativity. So, and, and for, for example, post-performatism uh, argues that, the, that what happens with post-postmodernism is that you um, choose to go back into uh, concretion. Uh, and mm -hmm. to, do, um, to do something specific. You're not in, uh, uh, in the relative anymore, but in the concrete. The idea is that with this decision to go to adopt modernist values or postmodern values, uh, there's always some kind of irony because you right. know it could not be true. Because right. postmodernity has shown us that you can't talk about the real or that, or that every decision you make is, is uh, relative. It's Uh, is always possible in other ways. So, right. so when do you when when you talk about evolutionary, it's is it that this that there's also some form of irony that you know you can't talk about evolution as it's in itself because you are always in this uh, circle of cognition and you you can't leave your 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 consciousness, you know. So you're always in this in this bubble. Right. Right. Well. That's a, you know, that, that there's a lot to respond to there. Mm. Let me just try to uh, take a stab mm. at it and say that, um, the, the, of course, irony is the, the light motif or the theme of, uh, of postmodernism because postmodernism's sort of job, its role mm. in history, right, mm. is to pour acid on, you know, the, the ebullient, progressive, kind of enthusiastic uh, mm. gung-ho-ness of, of, of modernity, right? Mm. It sort of has to put the brakes On modernity, and for good reason, right? Because if unchecked, modernity will, you know, pollute the world and exploit mm. all the workers in it, right? So mm. there's plenty of reasons to be down on modernism, mm. but you can only be, you know, postmodern if you've already received what modernity has to achieve. That is, mm. you know, a, a democratic society where you can actually be a dissident and say mm. things without being killed for it, right? I mean, mm. I, you know, I could go on, but I think certainly a sense of irony is is an important accomplishment mm. of post-modernity the mm. positive features of it right the the hermeneutics of suspicion have a role to play mm. so so being ironic is like you know a bit of salt you know on your eggs of it course it kind of mm. makes it taste better right but too so. much will ruin it right so too of much course. irony wipes out value altogether. of course mm. <laughs> right. and, and you see indeed many postmodern philosophers have gone exactly there mm. to say that the world is merely absurd Right. Of that, course, mm. that, you know, that, and that's been the big critique of, of this postmodern way of thinking is that, you know, you can't say there's no truth. Mm. As soon as you say there's no truth, you're making an affirmative statement of truth. Right. Mm. So it, you, you wipe yourself out as soon as the words come out of your mouth. Right. Mm. So I would say that certainly we, we are aware we've really been aware since since Kant. Mm. Right, that we can't see the thing in itself. Right, mm. I mean, postmodern philosophers took it to another level. They're showing it's not just a continuation of the Kantian line of, of, mm. of understanding, but 
what, what makes our actions and our lives more than simply a solipsistic narrative where mm. we can't escape our own bubble mm. is that there's real problems in the world that need mm. to be solved, right? And when we solve those problems, that solution, that, that improvement is real. Right? When you feed hungry people and they are kept from dying, that's not a narrative that's just you know within our bubble. That's something that really makes the world better to that person, right? For that person, right? Of course. So, so um, you know, I'd say that that while we want to be aware, we want to hold our objective view lightly. Mm. You know, to throw out all objectivity is is a completely self defeating you know uh, philosophical dead end. I would say. Of course, of course. But anyhow, when you are in, in, in the relative mindset and you decide to do something, to go out and, and, and change something, it's like uh, you, you have to choose a narrative. You have to choose uh, to, to observe specific problems in the world. You have to uh, uh, employ some models of the world. And this is always a self-referential act. Right. So, uh, so you can't... You can't Uh, put this out of the equation, and this is right. this is what right. I, so so absolutely I agree. And so we, we, you know the, this narrative of this integral uh, mm. uh, perspective that we share, this narrative mm. of the evolution of culture and consciousness, mm. you know, surely is is vulnerable to critiques that it's a narrative, and indeed mm. it is a narrative. Mm. But what makes it sort of relatively more true, mm. good, and beautiful than the narrative that came before? Mm. You know, sort of the ultimate measure is whether it can make some new improvements in hmm. the world, right? So hmm. modernity is still in the process of improving, improving things in the ways that it can. Post-modernity is still making improvements, so challenging modernism and improving things hmm. while it can. So we've now got a new octave of the hmm. beautiful, the true, and the good, which I think we can make arguments to support this, hmm. this proposition that it's better. What makes it better is that it's more inclusive. What hmm. makes it better is that it, 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 it promises to, to give us powers to make the world a better place hmm. we haven't had before. Right. So that's what we're after. We're after, exactly. we're after the improvement of the human condition. So what makes one narrative better than another narrative and helps us escape relativity. Mm. Right? Even while we, 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 you know, we, we know that this relative critique is real. We can't be absolutistic. We can't be relativistic. We have to kind of use both like two legs. Right. Exactly. Like we want to say, okay, there's something real and that something real is our narrative. But there's exactly. still something real. Right. So uh, th th that is, I think we can easily go beyond the critiques of the relativists mm. by saying, look, you can be as relative as you want, but the problems are still real. And that's what makes the beautiful, the true, and the good real is that they're relative directions of improvement as validated by the peoples whose lives themselves are improved. Mm. Exactly. That's so kind of, you know, we're grounding our morality in a developmental trajectory. Mm. And it makes our morality more inclusive because we're able to include traditional morality and include modernist morality in ways that postmodernity can't. You know, they, they can only reject those. They can't mm. see the good. They can only see the bad. Mm. So what's now interesting is that in your new book, you um, try to um, show the way spirituality took in the last 500 years, more yeah. or less. So... Um, how um, they are developed certain kinds of spirituality and, and understanding uh, and um, what, about what, what is spirituality and how we deal with this. So I want to focus a little bit on this now. You, um, just in the beginning of your book, you spoke about uh, traditional spirituality, secular sp spirituality, progressive spirituality and evolutionary spirituality. Um, can you say something about this? How sure. did you came about differentiating this? Right, right. Well, 
So in the book, I have a chart. Mm. Again, I'm, my focus in the book is on America mm. because things are different in Europe and, and try to describe both you know, places in the developed world in terms of their culture and their spirituality becomes very complex, mm. right? So I've sort of bracketed it to America because it's easier to explain and because that's where my you know, experience is being okay. in America. Okay? okay. And of course, there's much of the same observation could be said about Europe, but in ways that are complex and nuanced in different ways. So okay. in America, all right, we have the three major worldviews we've been discussing, traditional, modern, and postmodern. Okay. Right? In terms of size, Modernity is, is the majority of Americans, about 50% of Americans. What makes this modernist worldview empirical mm. is the agreements that, that people make meaning with. So those, those who are within the modernist worldview, there's a bright line agreement that if in science and scripture, mm. they conflict, science wins, right? Science is the arbiter of truth. That's kind of, of a course. bright line that forms the agreement structure of modernity, right? Mm. So, in, whereas in the traditional world, if you're a traditionalist, right, especially in America, then the Bible is the ultimate authority. And if science contradicts the Bible, like in evolution or whatever, then the, the science has to be wrong, right? So okay. that, these are, that's what, sort of what, I mean, there's more to it than that. But mm. to just get a quick handle on it, there are these empirical agreement structures, which are not just, you know, what you think is true or good, mm. but also what culture, you know, how you dress, how you vote, how you, of what course. you eat, right? It's, 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 you know, kind of a universal cultural agreement structure. And then, of course, post-modernity, as we've been discussing, about 20% of the mm. U.S., so 30% traditional, 50% modern. Now, in America, it's a but, very... Where do these numbers uh, actually came from? Do you know this? Well, uh, uh, you know, it, it, there, there is some social science. The most credible social science that points to the existence of these major worldviews mm. is Ronald Engelhart and the World Values Survey, sponsored okay. by the University of Michigan. Okay. Engelhart has been you know, collecting sociological data internationally for 30 years. Okay. Mm. So there's, there's some good, good data mm. there. You know, also, uh, Paul Ray, I mentioned the cultural creatives. Mm. Paul Ray in the 90s was funded by the Fetzer Institute, a big uh, philanthropy in the United States, okay. to do some real sociology to try to discern this mm. post-worldview and whether it was real, right? Mm. So again, you know, integral philosophy doesn't live and die on sociology. I mean, mm. social science has a role, and we sort of mm. take it seriously, but we're not limited to what we can say only mm. by what social science can uh, can uh, prove mm. because I don't think social science can prove much and mm. it, you know it suffers from physics envy in the sense that it, it wants to be a science and it's dealing with culture and consciousness and there's a sort of disconnect so social science is good but we're not you know limited by it or captured okay. so again in the book I have a endnote where I cite some research but if you want to be a total empiricist about it, you can question okay. the reason. Mm -hmm. no, no, what, what, makes, what makes these worldviews in the United States empirical, and we're, you know, the, the think tank that I have, this Institute for Cultural Revolution that I'm a co-founder of, mm. um, that, that we're getting a lot of traction with this narrative, if you mm. will, of traditional, modern, and postmodern. It explains mm. a lot, right? Modernists who couldn't understand postmodernism, when they mm. are taught this, you know, many of them, many very smart people are telling me this is profoundly true. And mm. it explains things like I could never see before. It mm. shines a light on culture. Of course. Mm. All right. So setting that aside, within these three major worldview complexes are three major kinds of spirituality, right? So in the literature, spirituality is usually defined broadly to include all ways in which people relate to a sacred dimension of mm. their life, right? Mm. And that, of course, includes religious spirituality and New Age spirituality. Mm. Right? And in the United States, religious spirituality, you know, mm. biblical-based spirituality, mm. it's about 40% of the population. 
Mm. And that means that even though its center of gravity is in this traditional worldview, mm. there's a significant percentage of modernists who also go to church on um, mm. synagogue or you know some some uh, traditional uh, house of worship uh, mm. on every Sunday and really identify themselves in that culture, right? So mm. traditional spirituality um, is not just fundamentalism. It's not just evangelicalism. You know, it's not all anti-science. There are many people who are within this culture of traditional spirituality who are very sophisticated intellectuals who are fully up to speed with um, philosophical debates and the latest science. So there's, you know, there's both backward parts and very uh, interesting forward parts of the traditional religious worldview. Mm. Then, um, as we've also talked about a bit, since the 1970s, really, you know, in the United States and elsewhere in the world, there's emerged this kind of countercultural spirituality, mm. right? Mm. It's not just what we understand as the new age, right? That mm. might be the more uh, lowbrow version of it, right? There's also this bringing of the wisdom of the East, the mm. discovery of, of uh, you know, certain forms of Buddhism, Zen mm. Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, mm. Theravada Buddhism. And when these were brought to the United States uh, by counterculturalists, of course. Well, much of what much of progressive spirituality was triggered by the in, introduction of psychedelic experience mm. into uh, culture during the 60s. Mm. People, uh, you know, who'd been raised in traditional forms of spirituality or or no spirituality, they had a psychedelic experience, and the spiritual nature of the universe was made abundantly evident to mm. them. For most of us, once we've had a, a profound psychedelic journey, you know, there's no going back to mm. a universe that's merely matter in motion. Right? Mm. And so this was a cultural phenomenon whereby, uh, you know, I don't want to put too much weight on the psychedelics, but triggered by spiritual experience in general, mm. many sensitive postmodernists began to look for forms of spirituality that were an alternative to, you know, Christianity or Judaism as, as their heritage, right? They mm. wanted to find it in ways that were had a distinctly different feel and flavor. Mm. And they discovered it in the wisdom of the East, in both, mm. uh, you know, certain forms of Hinduism, certain forms of Buddhism. They found it in indigenous spirituality and earth-based spirituality mm. and esoteric forms of spirituality, East and West. And this eclectic body mm. of alternative spirituality, even though there was all kinds of disagreement doctrinally about what's ultimately real or mm. what the right practices or whatever, what made all of this different kinds of alternative spirituality imported into the West cohere as a significant culture was that it was all conditioned by the postmodern agreement mm. structure, the worldview of postmodernity mm. was able to kind of, you know, bring this eclectic group. So mm. within progressive spirituality, the relativism of postmodernism was very mm. powerful mm. because it allowed a thousand flowers to bloom, right? Of all course. forms of spirituality were welcome, no matter how much magical thinking there was, you know, again, if it's whatever's true for you, and if you're getting spiritual experience from a given form of spirituality, that validates it, mm. even though it may be mythical or magical. Mm. It's giving you spiritual experience, and that's that's a good thing, right? Yes. So, so progressive spirituality, as as I carefully define as a defined term in the book, right? Mm. Which is a it's a market, right? I mean, so if we were to identify um, thought leaders, right, uh, authors mm. who concretize these stages, right? Mm. Within America, there's a, um, a very uh, uh, popular pastor, Rick Warren. He wrote uh -huh. a book he's called The Purpose Driven Life. Okay. It sold over 30 million books, which well, is mm. you know, monumental for any book, right? In, in progressive spirituality, the most uh, popular recent author has been Eckhart Tolle. Right? His yeah, book, The Power mm. of Now, right? mm. sold 
million copies, mm. right? And Tolle's doing very much. He's mm. just kind of it's, it's a, a harmonization or a merger between Hinduism and Buddhism with some theistic terminology thrown in in reference to pluralism, right? But but it's very much New Age, right? In a mm. good way. Right? Eckhart Tolle has has brought spiritual experience and spiritual growth to millions of people. Mm. So that's a good thing, right? Well, well I, let, let me just, let, yeah, just no. tell you one thing, because um, I like to think of it because, uh, in a way, that um, uh, till up to a specific point, spirituality was connected to a um, religious system. Like so, and what happened, like uh, like in the 19th century, 80, 75 or so, there was like, uh, Blavatsky and Alistair Crowley. He went uh, in the East and imported some new um, techniques. For, for the right. West, and right. and this was actually the first time that postmodern the the term was used by some historian who liked to thought of it as, uh, like like thinking in global terms. So right. this was the so and and there was like a de detachment from uh, religious systems and and uh, a concentration on specific techniques. Which, which happened in, 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 in the postmodern, or as, as you like to call it, uh, progressive spirituality. So every hippie could use uh, a shamanistic, Hinduistic, Buddhistic, uh, Christian rituals or, or techniques and, and identify as spiritual, but not as religious. And this is, I guess, the whole point with, with progressive spirituality, that there's right. a focus on, on techniques without being um, identified as religious. Right, it's more about practice. It's more yeah. about experience. It's not creedal belonging, right? It's exactly. not about being. I mean, for some people, they have adopted the vows and become Buddhists, right? Mm. And there's a sort of a, 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 um, a truce mm. between the traditional stage of that mm. religion and its postmodern expression. Mm. But for most practitioners of progressive spirituality, uh, it's an eclectic mix of different practices, okay. different mm. different viewpoints. You know, one of the ways progressive spirituality is able to transcend modernism mm. is kind of by bracketing the truth, right? Mm. You know, modernity is very concerned with intense intellectual, rational investigation, right? Mm. That's one of its strengths. But progressive spirituality, you know, while certainly people care about what's true in a general way, mm. there's, there's, no, there's no, you know, debates within progressive mm. spirituality. There's no contending mm. for different, you know, or very little contending mm. um, because it's more about what's good for you, what's what's true for you, mm. what's beautiful, you know, what 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 experiences can, can make us feel spiritual, what mm. can give us a state experience, right? And of course it goes back, we can trace it back to the nineteenth century, as you mentioned, and I, I acknowledge that in the book. Mm. But you know, the, the early precursors, we could you know, Emerson and Thoreau, the transcendentalists in the United States, are big foundation of progressive spirituality. But um, progressive spirituality doesn't really kind of come into its own. It's more, you know, that is that, that's a very obscure thread mm. until the late 60s and early 70s when okay. all of a sudden it becomes a major market. You know, okay. there, there's millions of books sold and, and you know, course. millions of people going to workshops and, and doing yoga mm. and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, like even modernity, we could trace it all the way back to the ancient Greeks, right, or the ancient, you know, uh, mm. Muslims. But uh, it doesn't really emerge as a historical force uh, mm. until the Enlightenment. Mm. Anyway... Um, you know, talking about in broad brushstrokes, talking about history and culture in this way, it's it's wonderful to do in interviews like this. But I've done enough interviews that sometimes people just watch the interview mm. and then they say, well, what about this or what about that? And I have to say, well, please read the book because mm, there I make the arguments carefully. Here we're having a wide ranging conversation. I'm of not course. able to kind of cover of all course. the details. Of course. But but um, progressive spirituality 
while it had, you know, it emerged as in the United States as, as, a, as a major force in the 70s, mm. continued a little bit underground in the 80s during the mm. Reagan years. Then it, it was a huge fluorescence, as I mentioned, in the 90s. Mm. And it's continued since then, but, it, but the growth phase is over. And it mm. may have been leveling off or even shrinking in terms of the, the amount of people who are participating. So mm. yoga is still popular in the U.S. And, mm. you know, see uh, pop spirituality, like a secret gaining, you know, an audience. Mm. But demographically, um, uh, progressive spirituality is sort of an of, of a isolated subculture at mm. the moment. It doesn't mm. have the vitality culturally. It's not attracting young people like That's it was true. in the 1990s, That's right? True. You know, much of it is just aging baby boomers who were clinging to their postmodern version of spirituality. Mm. Right. But again, that's not a bad thing. That doesn't, you know, I think by now in history, we know that this spiritual impulse is not going away. Right. Mm. That the, the secularization thesis, right, that religion's a thing of the past and it's going to die out. Mm. That's been completely disproved now, mm. you know, in by 2016. So the question is whether not not what is whether or not spirituality will continue in the history of humanity. But but how can we evolve our spirituality to make it? you know, more, more effective for our spiritual experience and, and, and more motivating to try to make the world a better place and give our mm -hmm. gift. You know, how, if, if we define the directions of evolution as moving in the direction of, of, of goodness, beauty, and truth, mm -hmm. then that is a, that's a kind of, and, and we understand those values not as absolutistic things, but as mm -hmm. self-directions or, you know, of verbs course. moving toward perfection, then we can, we, we have to ask ourselves a question. How can we do better? Of progressive spirituality. Of and so progressive spirituality shortcomings, its failures and its pathologies are the point of departure. Mm. You know, those limitations show us where we have an opportunity to make things that's better. True. And that's the opportunity that evolutionary spirituality mm. attempts to take. A conundrum for me is always the case of Timothy Leary, because when I was growing up, um, he was the first major influence of me, not, not just because he was like this big figure of the counter movement, but because I've, I was very keen of his book about info psychology, where he outlined these eight stages of, of um, the uh, wiring of the brain. And, the, and, and, and actually, it's pretty, from, from the narrative, it's pretty similar to spiral dynamics or all those things, but, but for, 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 the, for the human brain and the wiring and how to um, turn on those different stages with different drugs. And I find this very interesting, but... And actually, I find it pretty evolutionary. But on the other side, uh, he was this figure of postmodernity, of this counterculture. And I, sure. I never get this. It's for me a conundrum. I, I don't get those two parts together. You know what I mean? It's like. Sure. Well, we're all, you know, our bodies are locked in history, right? Mm. You and I are creatures of our generation, right? Mm. And so Timothy Leary, I think, made some major strides. He also mm. had lots of silliness. And there was, you know, that as his advocacy is sort of, Advocacy of psychedelics did cause harm in certain people. Of for course, he gave it to children, I guess, no? Bad idea. Yeah, okay. absolutely. The psychedelic can be dangerous. Mm. So the fact that he was the the Pied Piper of psychedelic experience, although mm. that did open the eyes and, and, and help the birth of postmodernism to mm. emerge, mm. you know, in some ways, when you, when you are a historical figure like Timothy Leary, you become part of the structure. You're like a column in the building. Mm. So you have to sort of fulfill your place there mm. in, in what history has to offer, you know, the incremental improvement that's possible. So I think he contributed to that incremental improvement, but we can't view him as, as expecting him to be outside of history or to anticipate no, mm. the historical achievements that were, you know, in a, in a generation uh, past mm. his.
This is the reason why he's not that acknowledged in, in the integral circles, because you can read a lot about integral philosophy, and but there's never a mention of Timothy Leary. I find this always a little bit odd. I don't know why. Well, we certainly love Timothy Leary here in Boulder. <laughs> uh, a close friend of mine uh, was very good friends with him uh, and with his ex-wife. They're still good friends. Um, we talk about him a lot. I remember when he staged his death. You know, he had a kind of a media event around his death. We all gathered at you know my friend's house to kind of watch it on TV or the internet or wherever it was. I you know these memories are dim. But Timothy Leary is as an important to know? figure in history. You know, mm -hmm. no question about it. I and mean, mm -hmm. within the countercultural uh, uh, circles that I move in, mm -hmm. um, you know, we do appreciate Timothy Leary. Okay. Did you see this this new movie, Dying to Know, about uh, his work and Ram Dass' work? And, and no, I haven't. I haven't seen that. I'll have to check it out. I did see Timothy Leary speak uh, when I was a college student. He came to my college and oh, really? gave a talk. Oh. Uh, you know, and and it was very interesting. Although at one point, one of the students sticks, stood up and asked him a question: "Are you really here to just tell us what we want to hear?" You know, she kind of challenged him a little bit. You know, <laughs> but. Um, you know, anyway, uh, I, can, I can affirm that he's a hero of mine, you know, mm. being a longtime counterculturalist myself. So. And then, then there came Reagan and some change happened in America. Well, sure, there was a dialectical, you know, move back, mm. right? The 70s, the excesses, you know, the, the embrace of postmodernity by academia, by the okay. entertainment establishment, by some major segments mm. of American society. In the 70s, the hippie movement was assimilated. So it mm. wasn't just these crazy hippies, it mm. was a major portion of America. Mm. And in the 80s, of course, uh, there was a mobilization of the traditional and, and those who were on the right within modernity to try to push back against the excesses of the postmodern revolution. Mm. You know, and I think that, um, you know, there, were, there was a moderation because, again, you know, the, the, this, this idea of evolution from an integral perspective, another way of talking about this dialectic, Mm. is transcendence and inclusion, mm. right? So in other words, we want to transcend, but ultimately the degree of our transcendence mm. is determined by the scope of our inclusion, mm. right? So, so, you know, at first the antithesis transcends, mm. but then it's the job of the synthesis to re-include, mm. right? The thesis antithesis is transcendence and inclusion. So post-modernity transcended modernism. It was liberated from the mm. confines of, you know, the modern traditional establishment. Mm. And, um, you know, that, again, important move in history. You know, you can't do it all at once. You have to take mm. steps, important step. So then, of course, there's a, there's a pushback against that. It says, wait, not so fast. You're not including us. Mm. You're leaving us behind. This, mm. this culture war, as it's called in the United States, between the, the traditional worldview and the postmodern worldview, mm. where the sort of the nodes of morality exist, mm. they've been a, in a battle for mm. the soul or the allegiance of modernity mm. since 1970s. And mm. that battle continues, even though postmodernism is gradually winning, mm. there's still a, a big anchor of moral investment and loyalty allegiance in the traditional worldview. And from an integral perspective, that's a good thing because there are very important values down there, accomplishments that we need. If we mm. let those accomplishments go, we can't go higher. We can't of course. go beyond where we are now. But can you, can you actually pinpoint the moment when there was a leap, like this emergence of a new kind of spirituality? You, you talked about this in the 80s, 90s. But when exactly and what exactly did, did happen in America at that time so that where, sure. where you could... 
Sure. Well, well, I mean, a, a lot of it had to do with the, the icons of the 60s, the sort of the intellectual leaders of postmodernism, like mm. uh, Ram Dass, right, mm. who was Timothy Leary's uh, co-teacher uh, at Harvard, mm. and uh, Alan Watts, you know, another important intellectual. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Ram Dass extolled the virtues of uh, Advaita Vedanta Hinduism, mm. right? Uh, uh, Alan Watts extolled the virtues of Zen Buddhism, mm. right? There were also other important figures, you know, mm. uh, from the East, you know, we had, uh, um, you know, uh, Suzuki Roshi and uh, mm. um, um, DT Suzuki, right? Both mm. uh, Japanese guys who helped popularize Zen. Yeah. And there was a hunger for Zen uh, mm. and other forms of spirituality. You know, then we had Chogyam Trungpa mm. uh, in the 1980s, who mm. was, uh, you know, very instrumental within postmodernism, helping to establish Tibetan Buddhism as the leading form of organized religion among um, postmodernists. Mm. So there have been, you know, champions of, uh, of Hinduism and Buddhism. And like you think about indigenous spirituality in the 1960s and 70s, Carlos Castaneda, right? Mm-hmm. The, uh, the novelist, right? He, he wrote about uh, this, this, this sort of indigenous understanding. It was connected to psychedelics. It's, it's and, not so, nobody is sure if it's true or if it's, if it's a complete novel. I guess not. Right, right. I don't want to, you know, uh, anyway, you know, <laughs> I was a great enthusiast of Carlos Castaneda as a young man. I gained a lot out of it. Um, and it made me appreciate, you know, alternative forms of spirituality, especially mm. the indigenous, you mm. know, and how much wisdom and mystery was there that had been left mm. behind that could be rediscovered. Mm. So, uh, you know, the history of, uh, in the 70s, it's worth mentioning this context that I was most attracted to the areas where science and spirituality seem to overlap. Mm. Right. So when Fritjof Capra published mm. his book, The Tao of Physics, in 1975, even though it's been largely discredited. Mm. In 75, the proposition that, you know, ancient mystics and modern physicists were coming to the same conclusions. Mm. That's a very exciting idea, which I digested with great enthusiasm. Then later reading um, Marilyn Ferguson, you know, her book, okay. The Aquarian Conspiracy, another New Age classic, mm. where she tried to show how all these latest developments in science were validating spirituality. and so this idea of the intersection of science and spirituality has been a major theme of my own spiritual investigations, mm. which has helped, helped lead me to, you know, the spiritual teachings of evolution, mm. you know, as I talk about them in the book, because that's mm. a perfect overlap between mm. science and spirituality. Do, do, do you know this German professor of philosophy, Thomas Metzinger? He, uh, I don't, I'm afraid no, I don't know. No, no, but he, he has written a very interesting article about spirituality, which uh, was wi- widely read here in Germany by the, by the integral community, because um, he talks one of the aspects, one of the foundations of spirituality is that they have the same normative ideas like science. So we, we try to discover the truth about us. Right. But what another different aspect is what, something which is, which is calling intellectual honesty. So by intellectual honesty, he means that we are able to question our own convictions. But if you can't, because if you can't do it, you are within a belief system. So you have to deconstruct yourself and question your own convictions. And because of this, he argues that the uh, uh, opposite of religion is not science but spirituality. So, and and this is very interesting because. On one side, he says, okay, it, it's about the unknown and getting to, to know the unknown and to find a way to find some truth in us. But on the other side, to be like intellectual, honest with oneself right. and to quest. Right. So, and it's Well, so I, I like that. I mm. mean, I think it's getting at what we talked about earlier. In other words, if we want to define religion mm. as the pre-modern, mm. traditional level, you know, uh, uh, allegiance to a creed, you know, mm. I'm a Christian or I'm a Buddhist or, you know, whatever at that traditional level, these religions 
uh, uh, serve an important function in society, right, in history, right? Then we break out of that, even though we may still believe in God, you know, science carries us further, mm. right? Then with, with progressive spiritual spirituality, if you want to define that as uh, the postmodern and beyond, mm. reclamation of what is sacred and what's really, you know, beautiful, true, and good, mm. then certainly it's, it, we can distinguish it from religion, and in the book I do. Mm. But, um, you know, deconstructing or questioning yourself can be its own belief system. In some ways, there's no getting away from belief systems, just like there's no getting sure. away from metaphysics, right? Of course. You know, mm. there's something that's real, and we, and we, and, and we can never know what, what is real completely, but we can expand our grasp. And, and, and how do we know that our grasp is more real than the previous stage? Well, okay. like I said, part of it is by agreement, but part of it is mm. by our power to solve problems and improve mm. the condition, right? So I would say that, that um, terms religion and spirituality want to be careful there. I don't think we can be ham-handed and just say religion is all the stuff that's pre-modern and spirituality is all the stuff that's post-modern because of in terms of questioning assumptions, progressive spirituality is worse at that than, than anybody else in the United States. There's mm. outrageous magical thinking, right? I mentioned mm. the secret ideational pornography. I mean, mm. It's outrageous, right? It's, it's <laughs> so not true and so manipulative and, and sort of telling people what they want to hear mm. that, um, you know, that that's one of the ways evolutionary spirituality can come along and say, no, we're actually, we're going to stop bracketing the truth and we're going to mm. get critical, we're okay. gonna, but not so critical that we pour acid on everything, right? Mm. Because we did that and we can see that's a dead end too. Mm. We want to be critical enough and, and humble enough in mm. what we can know, mm. but courageous enough, having enough moral courage to say we have a duty to make the world a better place, mm. you know, even in our own small way. And one of the ways we can do that is by evolving consciousness and culture. Indeed, I think that's the great project of the second enlightenment. That's mm. our, you know, maybe not in our lifetime, but but maybe in yours, probably not in mine. But, <laughs> but you know, in other words, the idea that the emergence of this next great phase of history, mm. like call it what you will, right, mm. post postmodern, that that can bring as dramatic an improvement in the human condition as modernity did. Mm. Indeed, we need it because we can't just dwell where we are, right? Mm. We need you know, postmodernism has begun the project of making modernity more moral, you know, more mm. environmentally sustainable, right, instead of more inclusive. But its values aren't strong enough to pull the rest of the society, right? It's still an antithesis, right? Mm. So in order to make the, the – in order to bring the fulfilled promise of postmodernism to bear, to make, you know – capitalism more conscious and America more moral, right? As, mm. a, you know, as a, gl a global actor, mm. you know, we need to go beyond postmodernism. And that's where this integral or evolutionary worldview comes in because you can't really improve something if you just want to destroy it, right? If, you think, if you think that, that America is a criminal enterprise, right? Which mm. many postmodernists do is a sort of a reverse patriotism, mm. which again is not all wrong, right? Mm. Patriotism can be jingoistic. It can be nationalistic. It can be ethnocentric. But the reverse patriotism that just thinks America has no good and it's, you know, we have to be suspicious of it's always self-interested. It's always pernicious, which is part of the postmodern discourse. Mm. Reverse patriotism can be just as blind to jingoism and one-sided us and them mentality as the original form of national patriotism. So when it comes to thinking about our political duties and our mm. cultural orientations, it's very important not to get locked into, um, you know, a, a, a rejectionistic uh, uh, form of, of just wanting to, to pour acid or, or, or to critique in a way that there's nothing left, nothing good left of what's mm. come before. Mm. You know, that's in a sense the distillation of the integral project is really realizing that we need what, what's come before. We just need to be able to distinguish the dignities from the disasters as, as mm. well.
So yeah, yeah exactly. It's like uh, an idea which is intricately uh, connected with Ken Wilber. But but in a way, so when 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 did this movement start? This um, that there was a new spirituality coming along, like a movement where where we say, okay, it's it's not about this postmodern stance of spirituality what what happened exactly in the 90s or later that right. there's like an identify identifiable new way of approaching spirituality right. in regard right. of the postmodern stance right well i don't know whether there's one bright line there's probably many of them mm. just like there's not one distinct expression of what this next great phase of history will be you mentioned you know metamodernism post postmodernism Right? There, there's many different lines that are coalescing into mm. this next great stage, and, and mm. it'll be you know, probably more diverse than post-modernity mm. is diverse. But what will kind of tie us all together is our ability to see the postmodern, the modern, and the traditional, all and the pre-traditional, all as being very important. Mm. Right? In other words, we're, we're trying to reclaim the spiral of development, if you will. Mm. Now, in terms of my living through it, I mentioned in the 90s, you know, I was a big new ager. I had this company now in Zen, which mm. I had founded. We were trying to create, we wanted to create like the, the Tiffany lamp of the new age, right? Okay. Some product that would be an expression of the art movement, right? Okay. And the company did great. You know, we sold, you know, hundreds of thousands of Zen alarm clocks, right? And I, I made some good money from that. But it was also, I wasn't really interested in being a business person or just making mm. money. I was interested in contributing to the culture. And I could tell there was something uh, kind of rotten or, or ultimately um, self defense feeding about okay. the progressive culture that I was a part of, right? Mm. So around 1995, and I'm just speaking from my own experience here, mm -hmm. um, the Institute for Noetic Sciences, which is a very postmodern you know, organization, mm. published uh, the work of Paul Ray, who I also mentioned. You know, he, his book came out in 2000, okay. but his original report where he defined the cultural creatives and, and, and offered some at least plausible sociological research to back it up, mm. fact, you know, sponsored by some major mainstream philanthropists. Mm. Uh, you know, he his paper published in '95 talked about the cultural creatives in a way that we it, it was swept through Boulder like a uh, like a wave. We all were awakened by it because we could all tell that mm. we were cultural creatives. Nobody had defined us that way before. We knew okay. that we weren't just hippies. We okay. knew that the hippie movement was no longer accurate to talk about what we were. We knew that there was this thing called postmodernism. So we were able to, for the first time, step outside of it mm. and objectify it a little okay. bit. We could see okay. it for the first time, beginning mm. in '95, right? Mm. Then continuing, like, so Sex, Ecology, Spirituality, Wilbur's great masterpiece mm. was published in 95 as well. And in there, if you go back and you look, if you have a copy of the book, his stages go, he follows Gebser mm. by going from traditional, modern, mm. integral. Mm. And integral's the next stage after postmodern. That was Wilbur's conception. And that's what mm. we all think. But then around 1999, um, I discovered the book Spiral Dynamics. Mm. And, and the researcher Claire Graves had validated the research. Now, Claire Gay's research is also called into question by modern sociological standards, but mm. let's just set that aside for the moment. The big aha moment came in 99 when Gray's work was, was discovered by me, it was discovered by Wilbur, it was discovered by other integralists, and we began mm. to see that this, this definition of green, as it's known within the spiral dynamics jargon, mm. was, was more clearly defined and, and, and described dialectically in the structure of history by okay. Gray's far more so than by Ray, who kind of glorified the cultural creators, mm -hmm. being okay. cultural creator himself, right? Mm. So, so this, this kind of bringing in of Gray's research and his clear, abundant description of post-modernity, which, which trued up Gebser, which added mm. to Gebser, right? Mm. Um, that was a major breakthrough. It was in 1999, reading Spiral Dynamics and, and, and reading about this kind of further iteration of the description of Green, this further objectification of Green that allows us to step beyond Green, 
okay. in ways we couldn't without that you know description. Mm. That's what gave birth to the integral movement in 99 and 2000. Because in okay. 2000, uh, I remember my friend um, sent me a, a galleys copy, a pre-publication copy of Wilbur's book, A Theory okay. of Everything, where okay. he incorporates file dynamics enthusiastically. Right. Okay. Now it's worth saying for the record that later Don Beck, the major popularizer of Graves, and Ken Wilbur had a big falling out. There was a lawsuit. There was all kinds of problems. Mm. So since then, uh, whenever Wilbur talks about the stages, he mentions Gray. Uh, he, he tries to say that this uh, under, this discovery of the postmodern or the pluralistic mm. was discovered by Gebser. He talks about mm. Gebser stages, and he throws in Graves' research mm. as a way of downplaying what Graves and Beck and and mm. brought to you know, our understanding, how it gelled. It was like the fifth discipline, you know, that mm. book by uh, Peter Senge, where he talks about the airplane, the DC-10. You know, there was one more technology that was added to the DC-10, which made it at another level than any other plane. Okay. The fifth thing, right? Okay. So the fifth thing that brought integral into being and distinguished it, that made the bright line between the, pre, the, the postmodern and the integral was this objectification of green, and there we have to give credit to Claire Graves. Mm. Later, Paul Ray, in his book, said, you know, spiral dynamics is a much clearer description than what I've come okay. up with in my research. All right, so they're, they're saying the same thing, pointing at the same phenomenon. So ever since 2000, we've been in the process of pushing away from and objectifying postmodernity and understanding it both for what we're using of it, what we're including, and what we're trying to transcend. Okay, and, and when does spirituality come and play? And well, spirituality's been there from the beginning because both Wilbur and me and, and many, most of the people in the integral movement in the United States, mm. we are all part of progressive spirituality, right? That mm. kind of defined our identity. So because we were all, that, that, that is, you know, one of the things that I love about Wilbur is he was a spiritual philosopher. You know, mm. even I, I didn't agree with his belief system. Mm. I very much respected that he was breaking out of both main, you know, academic, modernist philosophy and postmodernist philosophy, both of which are anti-spiritual mm. for the most part, right? Mm. So he's, you know, he's a philosopher, a respectable philosopher, who's got a, a clear commitment to spirit, you mm. know, by whatever name, and that commitment is one of the things that, that made him part of the postmodern okay. spiritual progressive culture, right? Okay. He was a you know, Hindu Buddhist. And for you personally, can you can you identify a change like Steve McIntosh in the way of uh, progressive spirituality and dealing with evolutionary spirituality? How how do, how where's the difference? How how um, do you incorporate this in in, in, in your past? Sure, sure. Well, um, you know, part of it part of it was a, a kind of a cultural disappointment in myself that mm. spiritual renaissance, the art movement, right? That every every major period of history has mm. an art movement that goes with it, you mm. could say. And so we could identify certain forms of art or music that go with the new age. Mm. But it wasn't, a, you know, the, the art wasn't that great, right? So mm. part of me felt like not only is, is there no real major art movement, but also so many of the promising areas of progressive spirituality have been contaminated by mm. commercialism or magical thinking. Or mm. it's just, it just seemed culturally repulsive to me. I became sick of it. Mm. You know, I was just like, man, this can't, I, I can't be a representative of this. I, mm. don't, I can't identify it with it anymore because I'm kind of ashamed of it. It's just okay. not good enough, right? So part of it was this disenchantment with progressive spirituality that began around, you know, the turn of the lane. Okay. Um, but because we, uh, those of us integralists in the United States, I, I can't speak for all of us, obviously, but, but I can say with confidence that we were all spiritual practitioners of one kind or another. And so the emergence of evolutionary spirituality was a continuation of progressive spirituality. Indeed, it's still, you know, many people who are integral in their cognition hmm. are still very identified with, you know, forms of progressive spirituality. And that's okay. evolutionarily appropriate. It couldn't be otherwise in this time okay. of history. 
right? But now in the, the 2010s, we're beginning to, evolutionary spirituality is beginning to, to become more differentiated from progressive spirituality. Mm. Beginning to, you know, the, the, this ways in which we don't want to be identified with a new age, mm. even though we are, even though we know the rest of the society sees us and they, they look at us and they, they think we're new age, right? Mm. So it takes some subtle nuanced distinctions to say, we respect progressive spirituality, at least some of its more mature, you know, proponents, mm. but this is the ways in which we're different. And one of the ways is, is we're self-critical in ways that progressive spirituality is not. Okay, right? this is what I meant with yeah. on, uh, in, uh, intellectual honesty. So, okay, yes. would, you, would you elaborate on this? Well, okay, so again, the, the, the strength and the weakness are tied together. Mm -hmm. So within progressive spirituality, a major strength is its welcoming pluralism, mm. right? The thousand flowers can bloom. Almost any kind of spirituality, maybe not you know mainstream Christianity, but but every other kind of spirituality, mm. you know, uh, is is welcome within the, the cultural context of progressive mm. spirituality, right? If you go to a, a unity church, you know they, they have indigenous spirituality, Hindu spirituality, Buddhist spirituality, Christian spirituality, Jude Jewish spirituality. Mm. It's all kind of you know brought together in this you know kind of wonderful eclectic mix where mm. everything's cross-pollinating and and. Mm. So that, that, that welcoming pluralism is a major strength. It's one of the ways that postmodernism was able to reclaim spirituality mm. from death at the hands of modernity, right? Mm. But that same pluralism is, the flip side of it, is, is, is intense relativism, right? Where, you know, you can't say that's not true mm. because then what's true is what's true for you, right? So who, who are you, you know, it's this sort of viewed as an authoritative usurping role to mm. come in and diss the movie The Secret even though it's chock full of pseudoscience and outrageous magical thinking, right? So in other words, because, you know, all this, this, these different magical propositions within mm. progressive spirituality get a free pass, mm. right? Everybody just sort of, you know, likes it. It's, it's more about how it makes you feel rather than whether it's true or consistent with science, right? Mm. Progressive spirituality has tried to align itself with science, but it cherry picks science in a way that scientists themselves, you know, they, they balk at, right? Okay. So, you know, the quantum physics has been a big, you know, the the, uh, um, um, the um, uh, Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics that yes. the observer uh, influences what's observed, right? You know, that's a very interesting development in science and, mm. and very, you know, worth talking about. Certainly there are spiritual implications of that, but to develop this whole quantum spirituality yeah, yeah, around it, silly. right, mm -hmm. scientists say, no, that's, you're taking that way too far. Okay. That's not what the science validates being able to say at all, okay. right? So, you know, we're trying to take science more seriously without regressing to modernity, right? Mm. We're beginning to question the, 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 the intensive relativism because we think some things are more true mm. than others. You know, some things are more effective than others and that, you know, that it is actually a negative to allow yourself and your culture to be captured by magical thinking. Mm. But there are consequences to magical thinking. Of course. And mm. magical thinking is not challenged adequately within progressive spirituality. So that's um, so. In your book, you, you, um, I talk, we talked about this. This is not a book about uh, certain practices, but more about the philosophy. But if you if you could pinpoint the the ways in, in which uh, a person deals with evolutionary uh, spirituality in context of postmodern, because what what exactly is the difference in the way of approaching, for example, a meditation? So right. or so uh, uh, or, or I don't know some yoga or pranayama. Or what, Whatever. So what, what is like the difference? 
Right, right. Well, again, we're, we're trying to include progressive spirituality, and mm. that includes all of its accomplishments. Mm. Some of the major accomplishments are the sort of understanding of yoga and the bringing mm. it of the West and the mm. making it of people's lifestyle, you know, mm. the popularity of meditation, not just within post-modernity, but within modernism, right? Mm. Meditation is, is in a, a very popular surge right now. Mm. So these are very important accomplishments, and we're going to bring those forward. So if you're in a, a, a practitioner of evolutionary spirituality, you may meditate, the mm. same way that somebody, you know, who's a postmodern practitioner or, or even a traditional practitioner, you know, meditation remains relatively the same. Mm. The difference is, is that what's new about evolutionary spirituality is a kind of a new truth, right? That we bring in the new truth of, of an integral perspective, which can mm. be critical of postmodernity, which can see, which can inhabit the postmodern, but can also step outside of it and see okay. it from a critical perspective. Also in the book, I talk about how the, the origin story, which we now have, right, beginning 13.8 billion years ago with the beginning of time, right, mm. through matter and, and life mm. and our mind, right, we have this story of evolution, and, and there's some empirical, you know, it's not just another story. It, it, it's got more power because it's based on some real science and then the historical understanding, although we'll, that narrative will inevitably improve. You know, in the future, we'll look back at our historical narrative and think of it as childish, right? Mm. But nevertheless, it's, it's some of the best truth we have at the moment, right? So we want Especially to if you use DMT, then everything. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, uh, this, 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 a truth this big is not just inert scientific theory or fact, right? It, it, there's, there's spiritual truth contained in there. In other words, we can read right off of what we now know about our origins, mm. some spiritual teachings. Right, like uh, the fact that we that we're growing spiritually, and that that has mm. a purpose in the universe. The fact mm. that the beautiful, the true, and the good are real, and they have a gravity on consciousness. Mm. Right, the fact that um, that the universe is creating value. Right, that it's not just a sort of mindless me mechanical uh, matter in motion. That there's there's actually layers of value being created. Mm. That we can feel evolution within us through the evolutionary impulses that we feel that that mm. you know that is kindled by the beautiful, the true, and the good. That mm. we're drawn toward what we find to be beautiful, true, and good. And that, that's mm -hmm. a spiritual teaching of evolution. So if we can begin to, to enumerate and agree about what are the propositions of spirituality that mm -hmm. we can read from our origin story, though that doesn't become a new religion or a new belief system. It becomes mm -hmm. more like a supplement mm -hmm. to whatever spiritual teaching, right? So in the book, I talk about um, the hermeneutic circle. Right, and this is a, a big point. The hermeneutic circle of a hermeneutic circle is where different terms describe each other, and then you know one is referenced to the other, and they 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 go in a circle of describing mm. themselves. So the hermeneutic circle I talk about is spiritual teachings, spiritual practice, mm. and spiritual experience. Mm. Right. So so these things are together. So in other words, you know, while some people can have spiritual experiences naturally, for most people we have to practice. Right. Mm. And, and, and more practice leads to more experience, right? But, but even the most non-doctrinal forms of spiritual practice, if you go deeper into the practice, they're connected to spiritual teachings about what's ultimately real or why mm. you should do the practice or what is it when you have a spiritual experience, what is it you're experiencing, right? Mm. Spiritual teachings are part of that circle so that as spiritual teachings are improved, that deepens practice, which deepens okay. experience. And then the more spiritual experience we have, the more that confirms and, and refines the teachings. Mm. So the new truth of the spiritual teachings of evolution goes in at the level of teachings, mm. improving what we know to be spiritually true, challenging mm. what we know to be spiritually true, mm. truing it up, if you will, mm. in a way that, that deepens our practice, deepens our experience, and, and you know, takes us on a journey around the hermeneutic mm. circle, right? Mm. So, so 
in, so one of the ways that evolutionary the practice of evolutionary spirituality differs is that you you bring back a critical mind that, that you bring back a philosophical view in other words science and spirituality mm. are ideally bridged both bridged and separated by philosophy philosophy mm. does an important job of keeping science from taking over spirituality or keeping spirituality from making scientific claims mm. right so, so philosophy is very important, but philosophy is not really, you know, there's there's deconstruction, postmodern philosophy, mm. but that's not really part of progressive spirituality, right? New Agers aren't reading Derrida, although they may have been influenced <laughs> right, by by the critique, right? They may have heard it third hand or whatever, right? Uh, the the idea that um, that we want to be more philosophical about our spirituality, we want to question it. We want to, you know, think about it in terms of, of a critical perspective, while not being so critical that we, you know, go back to scientism, mm. we become materialists, right? Mm. We know spirit's real. We know that we don't have a complete understanding of what it is or how it works. Mm. So, being the, what's the practice of philosophy? Mm. Learning and teaching. You mm. know, you've got to read the books. You've got to watch this video, right? You've got to explore around. You've got to be willing to engage intellectually. Mm. Not that it's a matter of just being stuck in your head, mm. but again, if we're thinking about it in terms of the beautiful, the true, and the good. The fortification of truth, the, the spiritual teachings of evolution are a new truth, which is so powerful that, it, it, you know, that when, you, when you metabolize that truth, when you take it in and give it out and practice it, that lifts you beyond progressive spirituality because mm. you can no longer go back to being a new ager because you mm. can see how silly it is. Yes. Yes. Um As I, as I said before, it's like um, your, your book comes to the to the same conclusion, but uses in a different way than than, than my book. My my take on this is like, um, in the course of history, um, spirituality disconnected from from religion, and then was uh, intricately connected to so, some techniques like uh, from Buddhism, from shamanism, from Hinduism in, in post-modernity. And what happened in post-modernity is, in my view, that there's a connect disconnection uh, from the techniques. So um, that the person learns some form of uh, consciousness technology, wh um, why specific um, techniques are working and why not. So, for example, when there are two persons and using the same technique and from, from one, for one person it's, it's working, for the other person it's not working. So, and I ask myself, why is that? So, and um, for me it's like, okay, the, 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 the first person may have a more intricate understanding of why this specific technique works. So, um, May, may have a better grasp of the evolutionary aspect of it. So um, my, my argument is basically with post-postmodernity, there's like a, a, a greater awareness of why uh, specific techniques lead to more spiritual growth or more, more cognitive development. Right. So, right. Um, and this is basically an evolutionary approach, but it's more subjective than yours. You're, you're going, this, this is the objective way, but I try to find my, okay, why am I, uh, in, in, in what circumstances, and what kind of state of mind um, am I using this, this evolutionary impulse, as you, right. as you would call it. So, right, right. so at my, my, base, my argument is, so when, when there's like a, like a character trait or like, like an interest of a person to do like Kyoto with a horse, And, and has not some, some talent or, or diamond for meditation, meditation will be useless. 
Well, I mean, it may not be as useful. I mean, a meditation is always good, you know, so, to do. No, no, no. For, but for some people gain great spiritual progress from it. Others will be, they won't make much sure, of a difference. Yeah, exactly. And why? Yeah. why? Why is that? That some people can harness the, 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 the effects of meditation and some others not, while others can use Kyoto or Zen, other Zen, Zen techniques to, to produce this growth. And I, I think it's because there's some quality of, of the mind who has like an inclination towards certain techniques or certain certain ways of dealing with this and and when we disconnected from the techniques what what is there is like um, a mindset like a technology of mind how you can use to to grow you don't when, when you when you have a knowledge about this workings of the mind you don't need the techniques because you can facilitate this in everyday life when you wash the dishes when you when you go out and I think maybe this will happen in post-postmodernity that that there's a disconnection of technique, of this. Okay, you have to use Buddhist techniques or, or, or Hindu techniques. So, right. Well, we can free up the techniques from their lineage, mm. but I think it's also good to, to maintain some degree. Again, if if we're gonna be course, doing yoga yes. because we like it because it's like aerobics, right? I mean, people can meditate or do yoga who are modernists, mm. don't really care about any mm. of the spiritual teachings. For mm. them, it's just a, a way of calming themselves or a way of getting a workout. You know, I'm, I'm not gonna critique that. I think mm -hmm. if you're a modernist, it's better for you to meditate or do yoga or do some other practice, right? Of course. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think that these, these uh, as some traditionalists have argued, that yoga has been appropriated, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, that because people are not becoming, you know, Hindus in their religion, mm -hmm. but doing yoga, that's somehow some kind of ersatz uh, mm -hmm. appropriation of culture. And I, I disagree with that too. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, uh, that while we can build on the accomplishments of postmodernism by, by eclectically bringing in all these techniques, mm. you know, uprooting them from their cultural roots and re replanting them in a modernist context. Okay. That has both strengths and weaknesses, right? Oh, cool. And so, yeah, we want to continue to do that. But um, the more people understand that, that these are lines of development mm. and that if they want to get the most out of the line of yoga or the line mm. of meditation, then they would do well to read the ancient texts, mm. right? Or, or understand the context of their historical development. That doesn't necessarily mean they have to become Hindus or Buddhists just to meditate. But understanding that, um, that these techniques are part of that hermeneutic circle of practice, okay. experience, okay. And, that, and that to get the most out of the practice, you know, I, as I argue in the book, spiritual experience is really what we're here for. That's our major course, purpose in the universe. Our, our role in the cosmic economy is to both to have spiritual experience and create it in others, right? And as we experience spirit and, and give it, you know, in our work, if we bring the beautiful, the true, and the good into the world, then not only do we become more evolved, but the world becomes more evolved. Of course. So connecting our spiritual practice, I mean, one of the downsides of progressive spirituality, again, evolutionarily appropriate or predictable, is that it's very much about self-help. It's very much about how you can benefit from this form of spirituality. So of it's often packaged in a very consumerist way. And when people approach it like athletics, you know, like, oh, how, how many hours can I meditate? Or how many, you know, how, how studly can I be in my mm. yoga practice, right? Again, that's a modernist, uh, you know, um, approach to mm. it. And again, that's not all wrong. But, but going beyond the self-help. Of, of, well, you know, I want to just do this technique because it's going to give me a state experience. Mm. Or I'm going to be grown spiritual. I'm going to become more loving. Mm. Those are good motivations. But ultimately, they're connected to the ability to make the world a better place. Mm. Right? The ability to help to be a better parent or to be mm. a better colleague or to be more moral. Of at course. Work. 
Of yeah. Course. And, and those, those, that, that external focus on it's not so much what you get as what you give, mm. that's often missing within, uh, you know, postmodern progressive spiritual discourse. Of course. So, yeah, but, but there's, al there's also like, a, like not an internal perspective on things. I, I guess you're right when you say there is this external perspective, but I guess what, what happens is that we get an awareness of, what, uh, of how our consciousness actu actually works. So, and, yeah. and with, with, with every stage, we, we com uh, comprehend more and, and know more about our own consciousness. So my idea is basically that, that with the post-postmodern stage, we learn how, why uh, certain techniques work and how, how the evolution of the mind actually works and that we learn to facilitate this um, workings of the mind in a way. And, and I guess these has to have to be like correlated to our, our doings in the world. Yeah. Well, I want to, that's an excellent point. I'd like to read, I don't know whether you've written it in English, but I'd love to read what you have to uh, write or about that because mm. I've, I've been trying to develop this idea myself and it's in connection with what, what I talk about in the, in the last chapter of The Presence of the Infinite and mm. that is the search for an evolutionary technique. Right? Exactly. So, so, so like, you know, three minutes. Every one of these major worldviews that we've been talking about in history mm. has, has made its advance and mm. become consolidated as an, another phase of history. Because there was a technique that went with it, a, a method. So, for example, the, we have the, the most obvious one is the scientific method. Right? Mm. The scientific method allowed us to see into objective reality more clearly than ever before, the mm. micro and the macro, and you know, manipulate the physical world through science in a mm. way that improved the human condition. Also, brought new problems. But you know, setting that aside, scientific method is probably the major cause of the Enlightenment. Mm. Of course. Likewise, at the traditional level, their major technique or method was writing. Right, what, what the, the bright line that, that, that is between all pre-traditional pre and traditional civilizations, traditionalism brings writing, and mm. writing allows it to consolidate civilization. It used to be that the only form of human organization was your blood kin, mm. right? Everybody who wasn't your tribe was the enemy. But when, when you could draw the circle wider to include all those who were in the same religion, mm. right, that means you could have a bigger society, a bigger civilization, not just blood kin. And the way that was done is through scripture, through history, and through law. All of things require writing. That was a big technique. Okay, At, as I write about this, this next phase, the integral stage, mm. the evolutionary stage, I think its technique will be a method for gently persuading people to move up the spiral. That is a technique for raising consciousness, a, a, a method for, for, for uh, giving people values, communicating with them through okay. the beautiful, the true, and the good that actually raises their consciousness okay. if they're traditional to modern, from modern mm. to postmodern, right? We can talk about that if you like some more, but that brings us <laughs> back to your point, which is what's the technique of postmodernism, right? If, if postmodernity is its own stage, and if this theory that every stage has a method that makes it more powerful than the mm. previous stage, I would say, and Jeff Salzman and I have talked about this quite a bit, that it's this introspection, of this ability to see the mind. Of course. Psychology, right? That is this awareness of the internal, the discovery of the subconscious of mind, mm. all of these things, which, you know, you know we could... You know, Freud was not a postmodernist, but but nevertheless, the, 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 all these technologies of mind and spiritual growth, which have been discovered and refined and brought forward by mm. postmodernism, is a major technique mm. without which the postmodern you know project would not have been able to come to the fore. Exactly. So I, my thoughts exactly. My my argument is that um, 
that we see in the world what we basically are. So when we try to, to um, comprehend evolution, be it like the cosmological evolution, the sociological, biological evolution, there are like well um, well conceived principles. And my, my argument is that these are actually principles of the mind. So the, the way of, of going from one stage to another is, uh, is always a way of selection, variation, uh, uh, repetition and, and emergence. So and because so and and I guess with what what happens as a technique for for a method for post postmodernity is that we like that we harness this this way of 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 evolution of our, of our minds that right. we um, that we repeat the things and try to be better next time that right. we are drifting towards a point of emergence so but right. we have to actually engage and like you, you call this uh, um, uh, evolutionary impulse, but I think this is there's a technique to to actually facilitate this, and I yes. think that this is the technique for 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 post postmodernity. Right. There are probably many variations on of that course of stimulating course. you know the evolutionary impulse, but just the truth that you have an evolutionary impulse and it's it's drawn toward value toward the beautiful, the true, and the good, just that basic teaching of evolution is tremendously eye-opening for folks. You know, when, you know, back to this idea of cultivating your mind, um, this is a subtle point, but let me try to make it. The way I see people's minds, how developed mm -hmm. they are spiritually, is, is not by how long they can meditate or what kind of state experience no, they of course. Do, mm -hmm. but, but what, what good they've done. In other words, Jesus, is, Jesus of Nazareth, this test, mm -hmm. by their fruits you shall know them. Right mm. now, again, when I say it's a subtle point, Ramana Maharshi went and retreated in a cave and meditated mm. for years. Right, mm. but then later he was a realized master who then made mm. a difference in the world. Right, so sometimes you know, developing your mind and being introspective or being away from it all and not worrying about bearing fruits, but in developing yourself, of course, that, mm. that's an appropriate you know retreat or whatever. But but I would say that it, it, you know if you can't um, like there's a saying that if you can't articulate it, you haven't experienced it. And the same can be true that if, if you can't bring it into the world by bearing some kind of fruit of beauty, beauty of truth, or goodness, then you haven't really grown spiritually. Of course. I think so. And this is the way where, where I think that, for example, spirituality and feminism and gender all belong together. Because when you, when you have a healthy spiritual development, you have also a healthy feminist stance. You develop this or gender stance and you can approach the world in this way and don't, don't distinguish people um, because of their race or gender or, or whatever. So, right. And I think this is, this is all a valid point. But, but I also think there's, there's another side. So that, that you have like... Um, a greater understanding of of how the mind works and how to to approach the good, the truth, and the and the beauty, and to to form to to find this and to to produce this in a way. Right. So and 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 I think maybe it's like a, a in Greek it's called metaxi. It's like right. a field of tension uh, yeah. where where these two poles belong together and are necessary for um, yeah for for approaching topics like this and and. Sure. Dialectical epistemology, if you're exactly. part of the term, mm -hmm. uh, is a practice that I describe in the book. You know, seeing things in developmental process, mm. seeing how in, in an authentic dialectic there are values on both sides. Mm. You know, and not only you know values themselves, but things that create value, activities mm. that that are value based or value oriented, mm. almost naturally, almost always. Uh, 
cohere in pairs. Mm. You know, that, that as I argue in the book, you know, the larger structure of the universe, infinite mm. and finite, you know, being and becoming mm. is refracted in a kind of a fractal or self-similar way mm. throughout our universe so that wherever we're trying to create value, we see that dialectical, you know, system mm. working mm. between, you know, the, the previous and, you know, the thesis and the antithesis. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what kind of helps us appreciate that we're on mm. this journey, this evolutionary journey of gradually making the universe more beautiful, true and good. Mm. I find this very interesting because um, you, uh, I actually used in the book the, the book about non-duality of David Loy, you know, and I was very happy sure. to see that you, that you used it as well in your book because I think it's a very, a very underused book. Because it's, right. Uh, right. So published because, by Yale in the late 80s. Yeah, mm, very interesting book. Because yeah. he, he works with the dialectic of the duality of, of duel, uh, uh, um, duality and non-duality. And that you always have to move beyond those poles and, and have to find like a way and, and... Right. But, you know, David Loy is also a strong advocate of, mm. of non-duality. He's a partisan of, of you know, non-duality. I mean, in the sense that he, he wants to, he, in that book, mm. uh, you know, Non-Duality of Philosophy, it's mm. called, um, you know, it, it's sort of a, um, you know, a, 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 Uh, it's a sales job I mean, mm. in, a, in a positive way. I mean, he's well motivated to try mm. to bring non-duality to Western culture in a mm. way that we can appreciate it, right? He's a Buddhist. He wants to convert people to Buddhism, mm. right? Which, again, is, it's, it's well motivated. Ken Wilber has been engaged in the same project. But right? David Law is, like is more like an academic or not? Well, he doesn't have a teaching position. I mean, he lives here in Boulder. Oh, okay. He writes academic books, but okay. he's, not, he's not a professor. Okay. Because his books are not like as accessible like Wilbur's books, it's like more more like an academic he's got approach. He's book that came out about evolution, mm. where he you know he's he, he's struggling with it. You know, I didn't mm. read it completely, but I spent some time with it. Mm. Uh, where he is, you know, he wants to fit everything into the Buddhist cosmology, mm. right? He's, dependent origination is the bottom line, right? Mm. So evolution challenges that, but the spiritual mm. teachings of evolution. The, the, in the universe of becoming in which there's real value, that it's mm. not an illusion, it's not just mm. samsara, right? Those are ways in which Buddhist doctrine is challenged. Mm. But because, you know, uh, David Loy, again, he's a champion of Buddhism, he's got to construct reality to fit with his Buddhism. Mm. That's where he uh, is limited, and that's why he's still at the postmodern level and can't really be considered an integralist. Yes, and uh, but but you use him in, in a way to um, find a new narrative in your book. It's not about non-duality, Which, uh, which you're writing about, but you, you have like this theistic um, perspective and you try to uh, relate those two together in your book. Well, I, I certainly understand. I mean, mm. I, well, I, I want to never say that I mm. understand duality, but let me just at least say that I, I praise it. Mm. I recognize this complex of spiritual teaching, which can be found you know, primarily in Buddhism and in mm. Vedanta Hinduism, but the mystical strains of all the great world's religions have a non-dual component. Mm. So I spent a lot of time in the book trying to talk about non-duality mm. as a very important attractor basin of spiritual experience mm. and the foundation of some venerable and, and long-term you know, human projects for understanding what's spiritually true. Mm. So I do my best to explore non-duality in a way that, that praises it and, and validates it and says how important it is. Mm. But I also try to contrast the non-dual attractor basin mm. with this attractor basin of, of mm. what I call theism, right? Or this understanding that, that, that the universe uh, does have a source, mm. that the ultimate reality has self-awareness. These mm. are arguments that I make carefully in the book just to sort of assert them baldly. You know, mm. this video is, is risky because people will may balk or they say, well, what do you mean? Or that's a regression. 
Mm. But again, you have to read the book and read the arguments. Of and there, there are many people who are post-postmodern who have had the direct spiritual experience of the love of God mm. without regressing to a mythic level. You know, it's mm. not, it's, so it's, again, evolutionarily appropriate that as progressive spirituality has matured, over the last 50 years, mm. that, that, it, that it's come to favor the non-dual, right? That mm. non-duality has become, I mean, even though there are other elements, there's the mm. indigenous, there's the theistic, but non-duality is certainly the leading form of spiritual understanding about what's ultimately real within mm. spirituality, right? Mm. So one of the accomplishments of progressive spirituality is to bring together all the great historical realizations, you know, mm. the, the, the treasure of, of world spirituality, the wisdom of the ages, we can mm. now see it more clearly than ever before, mm. and there, behold, is this incredibly beautiful, you know, uh, complex of non-dual thinking, non-dual practice, non-dual realization. Mm. So that's got to be honored by any future spirituality mm. in the future. But but progressive spirituality helps us by helping us appreciate non-duality. Also, when we apply the spiritual teachings of evolution and we take an integral view, mm. we can see how postmodernism situated in history, how it had a job to do relative to traditionalism and modernism, mm. and how um, that non-duality is not the end-all and be-all of, mm. of spiritual reality. But there are other ways of experiencing spirit, other spiritual practices, other great wisdom traditions of the world, which are decidedly not non-dual, which mm. challenge non-duality. Mm. So the old way of dealing with that was to say, well, there's a perennial philosophy. Mm. And all perennialists are non-dualists. Right. But, you know, not just me, but, but even within post-modernity, you know, Jorge Ferrer is, is a, a prominent spiritual intellectual who's written quite a lot about the perennial philosophy and its mm -hmm. limitations. You know, mm -hmm. how it was sort of a belief system imperialism, mm -hmm. how it sort of tried to, you know, make mysticism the end all and be all in a way that canceled out some of the great wisdom traditions of the heritage of Western civilization. Mm -hmm. So, again, this is an unwieldy topic that, that we should have started at the beginning if we were going to give this a fair treatment in our you know, <laughs> No, no, dialogue, I, I right? don't want to go, go too deep uh, in, into it because the people well, have, have to talk have about to it. The book, to, but to say to the audience, this is, this is we, you know, we are just... No, we're just talking... We're, yeah. just, we're just talking about the first chapter of your book, so but <laughs> but the, the, the last uh, 90 minutes. But I want to say there's like a whole topic, and and this was because I, I mentioned Thomas Metzinger because for me this is uh, intellectual honesty, right. like to to discover uh, some new narratives, some new perspectives, and like objectify them as you would say it and right. put uh, to integrate them and and not um, rest in the conviction okay everything has to be non-dual non-dual is a non plus ultra and i think this is the real value of your book that you can correlate th these two things there's this theistic view non-dual view and and um, um create an um, make it possible that people uh, appreciate those well, let me let me say mm -hmm. this isn't just you know my crazy idea that this recognition of a polarity and interesting, mm. you know, uh, uh, polarity between non-dual spirituality mm. and theistic spirituality, that some of the greatest religious minds of the 20th century, spiritual minds, mm. have come to the same conclusion, right? Mm. So the, the progressive Catholic theologian, a German, Hans Kuhn, right? He's got the same oh, yeah. thesis. He doesn't have integral philosophy, so he can't mm. see it as clearly, but mm. he makes a very eloquent point. The, the inheritors of, of Whitehead, Right, the lineage of Alfred North Whitehead, mm. as it's been um, carried forward, especially at Claremont University in, in mm. Los Angeles. Right, John Cobb, David Ray Griffin, all mm. of the great Whitehead scholars mm. have interpreted and developed Whitehead's thought and reached the mm. same conclusion. You know that, mm. that Buddhism and Christianity are both complementary, but mm. they also challenge each other in very important ways, mm. and that 
at the evolutionary level, practicing one can be done with reference to the other that, that makes both more abundant. Mm. You know, we can have non-duality more abundantly by understanding that there's this theistic pole mm. as well, and we can we can experience the love of God more deeply and, mm. and, and not have to worry. We don't have to be embarrassed that we're, you know, the theism can be reclaimed at this evolutionary level that's two dialectical steps removed from the mm. tradition, right? So the job of pushing off against the traditional has mm. been accomplished by first modernity pushes off against political traditionalism, post-modernity pushes off against spiritual traditionalism. Mm. But now we can take a fresh look and say, while much of it is mythic, much of it is magical, much of it is a you know in the trash heap of history, mm. there are spiritual experiences in there by the great mystics and realizers of history that point in a different direction than non-duality. Mm. So we have an opportunity to reclaim those truths, uh, uh, building on the accomplishments of, of pruning away the pathologies that's been mm. accomplished and, and build a whole new level of spirituality that thoroughly transcends progressive spirituality. Mm. When, I, when I was reading um, your book, I, I had a weird thought, like, um, is evolution a god? Now, that's a really <laughs> uh, interesting proposition. I, you know, I would say that the first and simplest answer is no, right? <laughs> that the process of becoming is, is, is a result. I mean, it, 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 we could say, you know, again, th this becomes very theologically tricky. Because from some perspectives, from a, uh, a panentheism, right, which is a theological defined term I advocate in the book, and which is this family of spiritual views, that of course, you know, everything is contained within God. Mm. So, you know, the finite, in a sense, the finite universe of time and space became a part of the mm. larger infinite universe 13.8 billion years ago, right? Mm. The becoming became part of being, a new phase of being or a new element, right? So um, I would say that, that evolution is something that's happening within God, mm. if you will, um, but that... I don't God, talk about the, 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 the Christian God. I, I right, talk... well, and again, the Christian God, a great book I can recommend, mm. um, it's called The Experience of God, came out in 2013, okay. um, Satchit Ananda, or Being Consciousness and Bliss, by mm. uh, uh, David Bentley Hart. Okay. He really makes clear that what the new atheists have tried to paint as the Christian God, this straw man, You know, this this cosmic magician or just mm. one great being among others. Mm. But that's not even what the, the, the more developed versions of the traditional religions, none of them think of mm. God that way. Mm. You know, God is more thought of as, as, you know, in a sense, the being who is being itself. But teasing apart these notions of the ground of being mm. from the supreme being, mm. you know, this is all theology, right? Progressive spirituality doesn't usually deal with theology, mm. but at the evolutionary level, we can reclaim the value of theology because we can, we can, we're not, you know, pulled into the mythic swamp. You know, we mm. can kind of look at it and say, thinking philosophically, which is what theology is, thinking mm. philosophically about spiritual truth is a very worthwhile practice, which can yield spiritual growth and which can produce spiritual experience itself. You know, truth itself, spiritual truth, and you get that aha moment and you, you become larger. That's mm. a real spiritual experience, you know, which mm. is an intrinsic value. So getting at the difference between the ground of being, the supreme being, this is not just some intellectual exercise. Mm. It's a real spiritual practice mm. and one that I think can be carried forward in powerful ways by evolutionary spirituality. Mm. There are so many topics um, I could talk to you uh, within this book with perfecting the universe and and even Stuart Kaufman. Don't get me started on Stuart Kaufman. <laughs> I, I really love I really love that guy. Yeah. <laughs> this whole idea of of, of um, emergence and whatnot. But but uh, let let me ask um, one one thing, which has 
basically nothing to do with with your book, but um, but more about um, intellectual honesty and and the way. Um, what bothers me in, in the in, in the in, um, integral community is this way of um, like this uh, evangelistic way of self-producing um, itself, you know, like promoting right. itself. And yes. for me, as a for me as a European, this always. Um, seems to me a little bit weird. I know you you are like you're standing on your own feet as a, as a philosopher, but how um, how do you perceive this in America? Because it's like all these programs and superhuman programs and all these. Right. So so. Right, right. It's like nails on the chalkboard for me. It's like okay. oh, I hate that. Oh my god. Mm. Just, <laughs> I mean the intense commercialism and the the, mm. the, the hyperbolic internet promotion mm. of. Any kind of spirituality to me is distasteful, mm. right? In other words, that the that the lack of beauty in the hard sell, mm. uh, you know, is destructive of the truth and goodness, mm. right? In other words, that an aesthetic approach of humility mm. and modesty in the, um, you know, in, in rhetorical attempts to try to persuade people to be interested, mm. you know, it's it's a fine line. Like anything beautiful, it can become gaudy or mm. or uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, negative very quickly, right? Mm. So. You know, I would say that um, I'm sympathetic to the need. You know, one of the, one of the good things about evolutionary spirituality is it's not bound by institutions, mm. right? Religious spirituality doesn't have to be that commercial. Although there's mm. certainly plenty of examples of it being commercial, because mm. it's got this you know thousand year or longer institution to support it, right? Mm. Science doesn't have to be evangelical or, or promote. You know, hypish because mm. it's got universities. You know, all these huge institutions which are paying the bills, right? Mm. Well, we're trying to we're push the frothy edge of culture mm. and there are no large institutions that are paying for it. Right. I'm not independently wealthy. Mm. So I have to play the game of, of, of trying to sell my book and mm. promote my author brand. Mm. And I don't do a very good job of it because I think that self-promotion is very distasteful. Mm. Right. So some of my colleagues who are way better, they don't have any qualms about self-promotion. Mm. They're more popular, mm. right? They, they, they have a bigger, uh, uh, their books sell more, right? Mm. They, they're, but I think they pay a price for that in mm. terms of their own integrity. Mm. So it's it's an artistic balance mm. between taking advantage of the fact that we live in this you know institution-free environment where we get to create it on our own, and that means we have to promote a bit. We have to try to send out an email blast to tell mm. people we got a new book or a new video. Mm. But that the more it becomes like a business, the more it becomes commercial, the more it becomes hyperbolic in a way that is overselling or mm. persuading, you know, sort of claiming things which are, which are uh, exaggerating what's really mm. there. I think we, we're going to pay a price for that. And so mm. I find it distasteful, but I do it to a degree. So I, I can't be so much mm. about it. You of know? course. Yeah. Of course. But I would say that my, my basic stay is let's have a sense of, of, of aesthetic decency about it. Mm. And just like we want to be self-critical in our understanding of what's spiritually true, mm. let's be self-critical and how far we're willing to get in terms of commercialization. Mm. I, I mean, I think this is true, but uh, in, 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 uh, what kind is like the American psyche, like the way of it, it approached democracy and has to spread democracy around the world? And it strikes me very similar that this integral philosophy has to be, has to be promoted and you have to, you know what I mean? How much is yeah. it like... Um, 
like well, part of the American psyche to, to do this. In, in yes, well, part of it is. Yeah, we are a huckster nation, you know, to a degree. You know, the commercialism, it's very you know, intensely American. Mm. So I have to say, I look at that promotion of Ken Wilber's thinking superhuman consciousness, mm. and I think it's atrocious. Mm. I hate it. I think it, it diminishes the integrity and the dignity of mm. the integral project, and I'd like to see it, you know, sacked. Hmm. Uh, likewise, you know, Mark Gaffney, very hmm. uh, big promoter, uh, you know, very commercial in his approach. He's recently received a big. Now what happens there? Well, I don't know. <laughs> no, I know what happened Mark there, Gaffney, you know, I'm not happened. one of his official detractors, but but the fact that he's so good at self-promotion, hmm. right, that he's such a great business person in that way, that there was a kind of a rebellion in the ranks. We said, no, that's. You know, that's too much. That's too much self-promotion. That's too much ladder climbing. Mm. So I think that that was a healthy um, uh, development within the integral community mm. of people saying, no, we don't want the, the person to be the leader of this who has the best commercial impulse. We want the person who's the wisest or the smartest or, you know, um, we, you know, we want to have more integrity in our community. And, and so that much hypishness is not to be uh, tolerated. Mm. It's weird for me as a German because I, as a, as a German, have a total different approach because um, two lost world wars and no cultural identity and don't get me started about this. But I don't know. I, I find it somehow weird that that um, this promotion has to be like like in, in that way and that strong way. And I don't. So I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> so let's do a thumbs down on uh, on over commercialism. Okay, Steve. As I said, we we just covered the first chapter basically <laughs> on on your book, and and um, I hope you will have a great success with this. Well, Tom, let me just acknowledge you for publishing Integral Consciousness, my first book in German. I'm very mm. grateful to you for that. It means a lot to any philosopher or would-be philosopher to have their book published in the world's greatest philosophical language, mm. you know, which is German. Um, and uh, so, do, do you know that your book is one of the only integral books which is a part of the curriculum in the university? Wow! Yeah, it's well, like I've so, grown so much since 2007 when I wrote that book. I want to rewrite it now because mm -hmm. I've learned a lot since then. I mean, you know, exactly. philosophy is evolving, but I'm really you know happy to see that. And I just want to say that you know you and I are in this together, mm. and I you know having a conversation with you about this. Geez, mm. even if we don't record it, mm. we should have conversations like this regularly because yeah, you know true. I can learn from you and we can you that's know true. work on it together. You know, of course, no, no. A friend of mine, he he works at the University of Berlin, and he just wrote his dissertation about Kandinsky and and uh, the the um, face of spiritualism and and occultism in his art and so on. And and he uh, uh, uses, for example, your integral consciousness as a, as a source of dealing with this um, different stages of development and it's really right. nice. Integralis Bewusstsein. Huh? <laughs> Integralis Bewusstsein. Yeah, yeah, that's as well. <laughs> well, Steve, I think we okay. have talked two hours now. Thank you, Tom. It's been really, a, the time flew by. Um, let me just at least uh, say the two places that I want to point people to who may be interested in learn more. Right, my my uh, the headquarters for my work as an author is stevemackintosh.com. I have lots of videos there and book excerpts. Right, again, we're not we're not trying to sell things; we're just trying to you know share the ideas. Um, but then I also have a political side to my work, uh, which is uh, I mentioned the Institute for Cultural Evolution. Mm. We're trying to evolve political thinking in the United States and you know, who knows where else. But but we're focused on U.S. politics, mm. where there's certainly lots of evolution that we need to go through. Mm. So we're we're making good strides there. We've received grants. We we've uh, attracted a lot of influential people to our work. Mm. So that is ongoing. And if people want to learn more about that, they can go to culturalevolution.org. Oh, and I would just um, invite people to sign up. 
to the email list on culturalrevolution.com.org uh, and stevemackintosh.com to learn about developments and be part of, uh, you know, this community that we're uh, trying to develop here in Boulder, Colorado. Perfect. Steve, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Looking forward and to talking again soon. Hope, hope to see you again. Do you go to the Intro Conference in Budapest next year? This year? Uh, probably, probably not. No, I don't think I'll be coming to Budapest, but I okay. um, wish you all well and uh, hope that goes smoothly. <laughs> and uh, love, love to see you uh, here in the United States when you can come. Okay. Come to Boulder. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll go for a hike and have dinner. And, uh, oh, this <laughs> sounds like a pretty good idea. <laughs> okay. All right. Steve. Thanks, Tom. Take thank care. you. Bye. Adios. Thank you.